Well, as you take your seats, I want to just begin by this morning by saying thank you. Thank you to so many of you who have prayed for my family or reached out to us or asked how things are going or brought meals or all the things you guys have done uh, to support my family. As 11 days ago, we welcomed our fourth child into the world. Um, so it's been an exciting time for us and just one of those reminders how great it is to be a part of the family of God and to experience that care. And hopefully that's something we all give to one another when we go through the joys and the trials of life or giving birth to a child, which is kind of like a joy and a trial all at the same time, mostly for, you know, my wife. So mom and baby are doing well. So thank you for praying. Thank you for asking. Uh, But it is good this morning to be back here at Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley. Now, if you describe the Treasure Valley, you're talking to somebody that's not from here, and you're trying to describe to them and explain where you live. Even though you might not live in this particular city, you might tell somebody that you live in or you live close to the city of Boise, right? That, that is the, clearly the most famous city in the Treasure Valley, and that might help somebody understand where you live more than Meridian or Nampa or Eagle, right? If they hear Boise, maybe they'll know where it is, and if they don't know where it is, they're at least going to conjure up an image of a blue football field in their mind and have some sense of what you are talking about. And as you're explaining where you live to them, you're probably going to have to explain to them, those outsiders, or maybe some of you need a reminder this morning that there is no Z in Boise, right? We pronounce it a certain way. And there's lots of conversation about that in this community, but I've noticed that there's more conversation on how you say Boise and a lot less on what does that even mean? What does Boise mean? As we think about that, maybe you even see on some banners around the city of Boise, Boise, the city of trees. That's right. And while they go back to how did the city get its name and they reflect on It doesn't seem like anybody's super sure on which exact story it is, but kind of the leading contender for how the name came to be was a group of soldiers that were roughly following the Oregon Trail. And I want you to imagine if you've ever approached the Treasure Valley on Interstate 84 from the east, you know, even thinking like from Salt Lake City to here, imagine doing that on foot or on horseback or like in a caravan of wagons. And let's just be real, it's a whole lot of nothing, right? Uh, it's kind of a, a wasteland. And then they, they got to a crest where they could then see into the Treasure Valley, and a French guide who was with them cried out, Le Bois, Le Bois, which means that Le Bois in Fr- is French for the woods, right? Because after going through all these miles and miles of nothing and nothing and nothing, he came over this hill and could see something different. He could see somewhat of an oasis in the middle of a wilderness, and obviously we know that we got the Boise River. We've got a source of water that's going to make this valley different. And so that's why the population of Boise is a little bigger than the population of Mountain Home, right? Because you emerge from this wilderness and you come to a place of abundance, a place that really is an oasis in the middle of a desert. And now you've got all these people coming to the Treasure Valley because it's still an oasis in the midst of a desert, just in a figurative sense, am I right? Uh, you got many people flocking here because they think, oh, here's a place that I want to be and I want to get away from the harsh wilderness of Oregon or Washington or California or fill in the name of the state, right? Everybody, it seems like, wants to live in the Treasure Valley. Uh, but more than that, I think when you think about it, everybody wants to be like the Treasure Valley. Everybody wants their own life to be kind of this thing of abundance, even in the midst of a harsh world. Psalm 1 talks about a blessed man 
who is like a tree planted by streams of water. And no matter what else is going on in the world around it, because its roots are by the water, it's always producing fruit. It is always full of abundance because it's connected to this source. And I think that's a life that every single one of us wants. We all want to be the Psalm 1 person. We all want to be like the Treasure Valley. We want our lives to be that oasis in the midst of a wilderness. Well, how do you make that happen? How does that come to be? And I think that's the question Jesus really is going to answer for us and teach us in John chapters 15 and 16. And for the next eight weeks, as we study those passages, we're going to call this series Fruitful in a Famine. How can your life always be bearing fruit, even if the world around you is dry and barren? So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to the Gospel of John, John 15 and 16. And as you're turning there, let's just get our bearings again. This is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. And at this point, the disciples' feet has been washed. The Last Supper has been eaten. Judas has left the building. And even at the end of 14, it seems that Jesus and the disciples leave. It says, rise, let us go from here. Uh, So I think chapters 15 and 16 are happening and are spoken somewhere in transit from the upper room to the garden. But all the way from chapter 13, all the way through 17, really, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a time that is going to be hard. He's preparing them. Hey, he's about to leave. Disciples, I'm about to go. And the world that, that, that you're going to be living in is going to be hard. In fact, persecution is going to get stronger. And I think it's good for us to be looking at these particular passages, even in the particular times when we are living, when it looks as if hostility towards biblical Christianity is increasing more and more, and following Christ is going to start costing you more and more. And it's going to be a challenge to be fruitful in a famine. But Jesus, that's what he's going to get at. Because he doesn't just tell his disciples, all right, guys, it's going to be brutal. Just hold on, hang in there. I'm coming back soon. No, he says, guys, I've overcome. And I'm going to teach you, even in this time, to be fruitful. I'm going to teach you to have peace. I'm going to teach you to have joy that no one can take away from you. He wants his disciples not just to survive, but to thrive in the season that is to come. And so what is that going to look like for us? And this chapter starts kind of with this agricultural extended illustration. And so we're going to go slowly and spend four weeks just looking at John 15 and those first 17 verses. And today we're going to start with the first eight. So look at John 15 and follow along verses one through eight as I read our text for this morning. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we see clearly this illustration or kind of mini parable. It doesn't really have much of a, a plot to it, but it's a minor action that happens here of Jesus talking about the vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. I think the point that he is trying to make through this illustration is, hey, someone that is truly saved, let me describe a little bit of what their life is going to look like. Let's write this down for point number one and then talk about it. Point number one this morning, understand the intended results of salvation. Understand the intended results of salvation. Let's say, okay, you are connected to Christ now. You have a saving relationship with Christ What's that going to look like? Well, Jesus is going to explain that, and he's using this image of the vine and the branches to explain that. And what are the intended results of salvation? Well, it kind of sums it up for us in verse 8, where again he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You want to show that you're my disciple? That's going to look like your life bearing fruit, and glorifying God. That is the intended result. And Jesus is saying it's all going to flow from himself. Now, this image of a vine is not new here in John 15. It's a common, it's a common biblical image. And perhaps the most famous Old Testament reference to the vine you're going to find in Isaiah chapter 5, where God compares the nation of Israel to a vine. And it's not really in a good way, because he says, hey, you're like a vineyard that I've planted, and I've taken care of it, I prepared all the soil, I built a wall, I built a tower, I gave this vineyard everything it needed to succeed. And when I went to get grapes, I got rotten grapes, right? And it's a parable rebuking the nation of Israel saying, hey, I brought you out of Egypt, I gave you the promised land, I gave you everything that you needed, and when I look for you to follow me and produce righteousness, you've produced unrighteousness and idolatry and wickedness. And he rebukes the nation of Israel. So maybe you get a sense here when Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's saying, hey, I'm a vine that's actually going to produce fruit through you. And you don't need to have owned a vineyard or worked on a vineyard. I think if you've ever seen a picture of a vineyard or you've ever purchased grapes from a grocery store, you're going to be able to track with this illustration. As we remember, grapes don't grow on trees, they grow on vines. And maybe you think of that image of like the rows of the vines on a vineyard. And there's kind of four main elements to this story. First, there is the vine, which Jesus clearly says in verse 1 and in verse 5, that's him. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I am the vine. So he is really the source of life. Everything is going to flow through Jesus Christ. The fruit is going to end up being Produced because it's connected to Jesus Christ. He is the source of life. The next element is the vine dresser. That's the father. That's the person who takes care of the vineyard, who works the vine. The father, he, he's pulling off the dead branches. He's pruning the branches that are alive to help them bear more fruit. We're going to get more into that image next week. And so we've got the vine. That's Jesus Christ. We've got the vine dresser. That's the father. And then we've got the branches. This is you and me. These are people that are connected to 
Christ. And he makes it clear that the way that they're going to produce fruit, you got to be connected to the vine. And this, again, if you've ever bought grapes from a grocery store, you know this. Because when you buy it from the grocery store and you put it in your fridge, it doesn't just keep on producing grapes. Like, that's done at that point. And if you leave it in your fridge for too long, you might have raisins by the time, I mean, really long. You're going to have some raisins, right? It's going to shrivel up and die. Why? Because it's not now connected to the vine. So we are the branches that need to be connected to the vine, drawing sustenance, drawing life from the vine, and then producing fruit. That's the fourth element. So the vine is Jesus. The vine dresser is the father. We are the branches, and then we're meant to produce fruit. Well, the vineyard, you're going there to get grapes. What is Jesus talking about? Because I'm looking at it all of you. I don't see any grapes growing out of any of you. So uh, probably a good thing. So what's going on here? What is he talking about with fruit? Well, that's another image that we see a lot in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And I don't think it's necessarily referring to just one specific thing. I think it's referring to a whole range of things. And if you want to write down a definition for what I think Jesus is talking about with fruit, I'd put it this way. Changes in attitudes and actions that reflect the life of Christ flowing through you, okay? Changes in your attitudes and actions before you knew Christ to after. Your attitudes, your actions, they're going to be different. And that's not a result of you just doing things differently on your own. It reflects now you've got the life of Christ flowing through you. Now you've got this vine pumping life through you that's going to result in fruit. And I think that broad definition is most appropriate, but let's talk about what some of that fruit might look like. If I'm talking about fruit that's produced from a Christian, if you've been around church before, there's probably one verse that's popping into your mind more than anything else, and that is Galatians 5, and 23, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So let's actually go look at that together. Keep a finger in John 15 and just flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Or maybe you've got this memorized, as we start to see this fruit, what are these changes in attitudes and actions that reflect the life of Christ flowing through you? Well, in he talks about some of the fruit here, but verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things... There is no law. So if you really look at most of those things, most of those things are attitudes, right? You're going to have new attitudes as a Christian. You're going to be more patient. You're going to experience kindness and goodness and gentleness. You're going to have love, joy, and peace, right? These are fruits of the Spirit. Well, you can't have those attitudes without them leading to actions. And when you think about these actions, there's going to be some actions that you stop doing, and some actions that you start doing. What, what's some of the actions you're going to stop doing? Well, go back to verse 19. It describes the works of the flesh. And these are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That if these are the actions that dominated your life before you were a Christian, we're going to start seeing less of that. 
And we're going to start seeing more of love, joy, peace, patience, and then the actions that would flow from those things. So you start to see this change in attitudes, change in actions. And one action that's going to really be involved, I think as well, that we specifically see referred to as fruit throughout the New Testament is sharing the gospel with others and serving Christ to produce new converts, right? That's another way that fruit is spoken of in the New Testament. And I think all of those things, when Jesus talks about, hey, when you abide in the vine, you're going to bear much fruit, that's what it's talking about. New attitudes, new actions, investing spiritually in other people. All of that, Jesus is saying, this is why I've saved you. This is why you're attached to the vine, to produce fruit, to show that you're my disciples, and to glorify God in all of that. So the big picture of really this whole extended illustration that we're going to spend four weeks looking at is the goal is that Christians abide in Christ, we draw life from him, and therefore we produce much fruit. And we want to talk specifically over these next two weeks. I want to break up verses one through eight over this week and next week and really look at different subjects. Because when we look at these branches, what we see is there are two types of branches. There are those that bear fruit and those that do not. Now, there's that absolute division. There's some degrees where it's, hey, there's branches that do bear fruit. And among those, uh, some bear more fruit than others. But there are those that bear fruit and there are those that don't. And the same with abiding in Christ. There are those who abide in Christ and those who don't. And of those who abide in Christ, it seems that we can do that to a greater or lesser degree, but either you are abiding in Christ or you're not. And I want to break that up over the next two weeks. And this week, I want us to think about what Jesus is saying in this passage. What about the branches that do not bear fruit? What about those that do not abide in Christ? Let's look specifically at what he says again. He addresses them uh, very straight on in verses 2 and verse 6. Look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, takes away. So the branches that don't produce fruit are taken away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So there's lots of discussion here. If you study this passage, you open up different commentaries, there's various views of what in the world is going on here. And I think whatever perspective you come to, you have to have some degree of caution. Because as you study the Bible, one easy mistake to make is to look at an illustration that Jesus makes or a parable that he tells and try to make every single detail and build all of your theology on these small details. Or lots of times, the illustrations that Jesus makes or the parables that he tells have kind of one big idea that he's trying to get across. And so if we uh, build our whole theology off some minor detail of the story, that's not what Jesus meant. And we want to dig into what did Jesus mean by what he said. But it is fair for us to ask, what does he mean by this? And I want to tell you how I, what I think it means and then try to prove that to you with even some other scriptures. So we're going to need our, our Bibles for this point. But I think that Jesus, when he's talking about these branches that do not bear fruit, those that do not abide in Christ, I think he is talking about people who are not true believers in Christ. One of the things that makes me think that is how it ends in verse 6. 
These branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned, right? That doesn't seem to me like a way Jesus would describe something that happens in the end to a believer. And we're going to see that even in some other parables. This seems to fit with when Jesus teaches about hell. And that's where these dead branches seem to end up. And then some will say, well, hey, these were in the vine, but now they're being burned. So it's people that have lost their salvation. And that's where I think, well, that doesn't seem to match up with what Jesus seemed to really clearly say in John 10, when he said, hey, I'm the good shepherd and uh, you're not getting my sheep from me because they're in my hand. The father's hand is around my hand and I'm not losing anything. We talked about that. It's not really so much, can a Christian lose his or her salvation? It's, can Christ lose a Christian? And he clearly says, no way. He is holding on to everybody that belongs to him. So what I think is going on with these branches that do not bear fruit is the reality that there are some people, in fact, there are many people that have an external connection to Christ. They have some kind of visible connection to Christ, whether they attend church or would call themselves a Christian or something that connects them with Christ, but there is no internal connection to Christ. There is no living and vital connection between them and the vine. And the end of that condition, which is not genuine salvation, is destruction. They are thrown into the fire and burned. I want us to think biblically today and look at other scriptures that I think are even more clear about what's up with fruitless Christianity. Point number two this morning, see the tragic end of fruitless Christianity. And yes, the Christianity there is intentionally in quotes, because what I want to show you, I think, from the scriptures, and we're going to see, I think, some pretty clear ones. There's a lot of things that claim to be Christian out there that aren't really Christian. And that there is no, truly no such thing as fruitless Christianity. Let's first look at some other parables that seem to match up with this, and then we'll move on to some clearer passages. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And here is one of the most famous parables that Jesus tells. If you've been at church much in your life, you've probably heard this parable. I'll summarize it for you, but it's the parable of the sower. And he goes out to sow, and there are four kinds of soil. He sows along the path, and the birds come and eat up the seed. He throws among the rocky soil, and it shoots up and sprouts, but then as soon as the sun comes out, it withers and dies because it has no root. And then there's the thorny soil where it starts to grow, but then it gets choked out by the weeds and the thorns. And then there's the good soil, which produces fruit. And kind of like our illustration in John, some more than others. But we've got three soils that don't end up producing fruit that survives, and then one that does. And Jesus explains this parable starting in verse 18. So follow along there. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And we see that, right? You share the gospel with people and it's just like, it is not getting through, right? It is not getting into their head. It's definitely not getting into their heart. That's the, that's the path. The evil one just snatches it away. But now every of the other three, each of the other three soils start, it seems to do something. But we're going to see only one of those soils actually is a picture of genuine saving faith 
that produces fruit. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, right? He's not actually connected to the life source. He has no root and he endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So there you've got two different kinds of soil that it seems like, hey, I think we got something going on, but it turns out, no, not really. Because either persecution, I'm gone. Or you know what? Actually, I love the world and I'm not ready to give that up. Then verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So not everything that seemed fruitful at first ended up being that way. And even the next parable talks about the weeds and the tares, right? And kind of gives this picture that we're not always going to even be able to tell during this life. That someday their judgment is coming, but in this world, we're going to be living in this world where some people are following Christ, some people aren't, and it's not always even clear because some people claim to be following Christ, but there's no real fruit of that. There's not really a connection on the inside between them and Christ. Now let's move on to some passages, I think, that even speak more directly and clear. We're not talking about parables. We're not talking about illustrations. It's just straight on. And one reference that you can uh, jot down, you might not need to turn there, because Pastor Charlie just taught on it recently, is James chapter 2. And you can put down verse 26. Because it just says, For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. That there is a kind of faith that is not genuine. It might say the right things, but if it doesn't produce the right things, then you know the problem is the faith is actually defective. Because earlier he describes, uh, you know who believes? The demons. Their theology is pretty pristine if you give them a theology exam, right? But they don't actually accept it. There's no connection between them and Christ. Therefore, there's no fruit. Their faith, that's not real saving faith. This is a way we like to put it around here. If you've been through partners, you come across this in chapter one, this math equation that we'll put up on the screen for you, right? The gospel plus the response equals salvation plus works. If you understand the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the son of God, died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and you respond to that the way Jesus tells us to by turning from our sin and trusting in him as our Lord and Savior, then boom, you are saved and you will produce good works, right? It's the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. And if we look at this equation, it's like, whoa, the works aren't there. Then what we have to do is go back and say, ah, then we must be either not understanding the gospel or we haven't responded. Because if we just try to add works to that, well, now we're actually putting it on the wrong side of the equation. And that's one thing I hope we would all defend to the death is that we are saved by faith and not by works. I don't know about you. I'm still protesting what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, right? No, we are not saved by works and by prayers. We are saved by grace through faith. But the Bible makes clear that faith is going to produce works or else it's not real faith. That's what the Bible 
teaches, I think, very clearly. Let's look at one more passage that I think is pretty clear on this and pretty serious and pretty sobering. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. If you're in Matthew 13, it's just a few pages over for you. But this, again, this is a direct quote from Jesus. He's not telling a parable right now. He is just telling you how it is. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So let's even stop right there. He's not saying we're saved by our works, but he's saying, hey, if your faith is real and that calling me Lord, Lord, you actually mean it, you're going to actually then do what I say. And if you're not doing what I say, then you don't have real faith. And look at verse 22. On that day, many, catch that word, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? Think about that. This is presenting a picture of people who show up in front of Jesus on judgment day and they think they're okay. They see Jesus and they, hey, Lord, I know who you are. And Jesus looks at them and says, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. And think about what that leads to, right? Think about where John 15 ends. Where do those branches, they are thrown into the fire and burned. What happens at the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares? The the tares, they're thrown into the fire, a place that he describes of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And these people, some of them, they have some external sign of connection to Christ. Even some of them, hey, Jesus, I did some stuff. And he says, I never knew you. It's not real. Can we just think about that for a moment? Can we think about the people that they think they are okay? And how, I mean, are we talking about a couple people? No, Jesus uses the word many. There will be many people who die thinking, I'm going to heaven. And when they stand before Christ, they're in for an eternal shock to be sent away to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Isn't this something that we want to think carefully about? Maybe you've seen those commercials that talk about the difference between pretty sure and totally sure. Isn't this something you want to be totally sure about? That's why the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you? Isn't that kind of John 15? We're abiding in Christ. He's abiding in us. Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Examine yourselves. Maybe you need to go back to Galatians chapter 5 and look at those two lists. Look at the works of the flesh and look at the fruit of the Spirit and honestly ask yourself, which one of these describes me? And that's where it can get tricky because even Galatians 5 talks about there's a struggle. If you're saved, 
that there's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And that's why one thing we say around here a lot is it's about direction, not perfection, right? None of us is going to say 100% fruit of the spirit, 0% works of the flesh, got it made, up top, here we go, right? No, there's, there's a struggle in all of us, but what is the direction of your life? Which is if you look at that and you're like, no, the works of the flesh, that is me. That dominates my life. That is the direction I am headed. You need to read the end of that part where it says, I'm warning you. Those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think the Bible is pretty clear here. And I think it's good for us as we come across passages like John 15 that we do stop and reflect on this. Let me just say, hey, as a a pastor, as a preacher, there's not a thought that really concerns me more than thinking about somebody living in our community or worse, showing up to this church every Sunday, maybe serving some way in the church, I'm showing up and, you know, talking the talk in life group. But when I stand before Christ, I'm going to say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. How many people in this valley, how many people right here this morning are headed towards Matthew 7? That's a concerning thought for me as a preacher. And I don't want anybody to, I want them to at least have heard that warning before they experience that. And to hear the biblical warning, examine yourself, test yourself. And not only do I see that in scripture, it really concerns me about the culture we live in. It's getting less that way, but still a very Christian culture in the United States of America and even more in a place that conservatives are flocking to, like Idaho. I think Jesus used the word many. I think there are many in the United States. There are many in the Treasure Valley who think I'm good with Jesus. But if they honestly looked at their lives, they would realize there's no fruit. I'm still dominated by the works of darkness. And we live in an age where I think hostility towards biblical Christianity is going up. And I want to know who's going to keep standing when that gets even hotter. And who among us is the root or the seed on the rocky soil. That you're here, and as long as it's singing worship songs and getting good fuzzy feelings, I'm in. But when it comes to it's going to cost me my job, or it's going to cost me my friends, or it's going to cost me this secret pet sin that I'm still holding on to, I'm out right? Who are, who are you? What, what are you going to be? Are you really saved or are you just a dead branch hanging on the tree? That Jesus says you're going to be taken off and thrown into the fire. I think it's needed for us to think about this. It's important that we don't stay here forever and we're going to move on in John 15 because the goal is Jesus says, I want your joy to be full. And that's why Compass Bible Church, we want everybody that's a part of this church to actually be saved, not deceived about it. And then to, to know that they are saved so that we can have joy, so we can have what we sing about when we sing about blessed assurance. I'm saved and I know it, right? That's where we all want to be. And that's where we're going to get to. But today it has to start with you being honest with yourself, Nothing could be more important. I don't think there is a more tragic thing that we see in all of Scripture than what we see in Matthew chapter 7. And I don't want anybody here in this room this morning for that to be their end. Be honest with yourself. I think Scripture is clear. There is truly no such thing as a fruitless 
Christian, faith without works is dead. Jesus is the light of the world and whoever believes in him will not walk in darkness. Do you see fruit in your life? And even maybe just the most basic question to ask is we're going to see even as we go forward to John 15, do you love Jesus? Do you truly love him? And I want to say one word because we need to come back to warnings like this from time to time. But there are some of you, not all of you, but some of you, that the biggest problem you have in your Christian life is you can never get to that place of assurance. You are always doubting your salvation. You're always, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure. I hope I, hope I don't end up like Matthew chapter 7. I don't want to end up like Matthew chapter 7, but I hope I don't. I don't know. Right? And that's where you live. Right? As you hear a warning like this, one thing I want to caution you about is beware of the word enough. When you start saying, well, do I see enough fruit? Do I love Jesus enough? Well, let me just answer the question for you. No, it's not enough. There's only one person that ever did enough and his name is Jesus. And that's why we need him, right? Because we need Jesus because we haven't done enough. So again, look at the direction of your life, not perfection, but honestly, look at yourself. And if you are here today and you realize, yes, this is a problem. I am a fruitless Christian, which means this is not real, which means I'm headed towards Matthew chapter seven. How do I fix that? Well, that's an important question that we're gonna answer before we leave this morning. And I wanna move, we're kind of talking about agriculture. I wanna move from a vineyard to something that's maybe more familiar to most of us in the room. Let's just talk about turning your sprinklers back on. Many of you had to do that over the last couple months, right? And this is where if you're not a homeowner or you you don't have, this is one time say, count your blessings because sometimes it's a pain, right? getting that back on. I got the email from our HOA. Hey, the irrigation's back on. Go ahead, turn on your sprinklers. I went out into the backyard, opened the valve box, turned the manual valve, heard that water gushing through, looked toward the lawn and the sprinklers, and I saw nothing. There was no, you could say there was no, there was no fruit, right? I was expecting water to be shooting all over my lawn, which is now going to turn, you know, 100 different beautiful shades of green, right? But none of that happened. Nothing was coming out of the sprinklers. Now, how am I going to fix that? Well, it's not by going on the lawn and giving the sprinklers a pep talk, okay? Not going to get out there. Come on, guys. You did it last year. You did it the summer before. I know you've got it in you. It's not, hey, come on, sprinklers. Do better. Try harder, right? It's not by shaming them. How dare you? Call yourself sprinklers, right? None of those things are going to work. I could get a flathead screwdriver and pry every single one of them open, right? Nothing's going to happen, right? That's not going to work. I noticed there was no fruit. There was no, there's nothing flowing from my sprinklers. What I did notice, though, was a puddle forming and bubbling up through the ground a couple feet away from my valve box. And I realized I had a problem. So I turned that water off and I dug a hole, which because the ground was so soaked, was the easiest hole I've ever dug in my life, and found, well, there was an elbow joint in my irrigation system that was busted, right? And as long as it's that, that's that way, those sprinklers are never going to produce water because they weren't connected to the water source. And that had to be fixed, and thankfully it was fixed, and now they're working. They, it, they needed to be connected, Right? And that's where, again, when we look at this equation, we can't just, if the works are missing, the answer isn't, well, hey, let's just add those works in there. No, it's not going to work. The problem is you're not connected. The answer is not do better, try harder. No, if there's not fruit on the outside, 
It's because you're not connected on the inside. Look again very carefully back in Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 15. If I say the wrong reference, I haven't been sleeping quite as much over the last couple of weeks as normal. So forgive me for that. But back in John chapter 15, look at verse 6. And look very carefully how it begins, right? If anyone does not bear fruit, he is thrown away. Like, is that what it says? Man, we have come a long way from a few weeks ago when Shannon Hurley was preaching here. Let's try that again. Six, if anyone does not bear fruit, he is thrown away. Is that what it says? No. It says, if anyone does not abide in me. And if you look at this passage, there's clearly a connection. You don't abide in Christ, you don't bear fruit. You abide in Christ, you bear fruit. You bear fruit, you're abiding in Christ. You don't bear fruit, you're not abiding in Christ. They're they're interchangeable, one and and the same, right? If you are not abiding in Christ, you will not bear fruit. If you are not bearing fruit, then the problem is you're not abiding in Christ. What does that mean? That word is used several times in this passage, abide. It's kind of a simple Greek word. It means to remain or dwell. Sometimes it's even used simply of, you know, Somebody traveling and they come to a city and they stay there. They abide there. It's as simple as that, but I want us to get get a sense of what Jesus is getting at. So look again at verses four and five. Verses four and five, where we're gonna see this word used a lot. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in In me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so one thing that I think comes across very unmistakably in how Jesus uses that is a picture of dependence, right? Abiding in Christ means depending on Christ because without him, you're not doing anything, right? You need Christ. So point number three, how do we fix this problem? Declare your dependence on Christ. Declare your dependence on Christ. No amount of effort is going to start producing the fruit of a redeemed life. It's not do better. It's not try harder. It's abide in Christ. Trust in him. Declare your dependence on him. And what does that look like? A few things. I don't think you can truly Declare your dependence on Christ without also admitting authority and admitting that he has the authority and you do not. Even we think about declaring dependence. Let's think about when our nation declared its independence. It wasn't just a matter of, well, hey, we've been here for a little while now, King George, and we've kind of figured things out and we're financially self-sufficient. We figured out some self-government. So we're good now, right? No, that's not what we're going to shoot fireworks off in a couple months for, right? We were rejecting King George's authority, saying, no, 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 no. No taxation without representation. You don't have authority over us. We're a new nation, right? Declaring independence was a rejection of authority. Declaring dependence is going to involve an acceptance of authority, admitting that you are not in charge, but that Jesus is. Another part of declaring dependence is going to be admitting need. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why Matthew chapter 7 is so epidemic in our society. Because I think in the good old United States of America, 
It's difficult for people to admit, I can't do anything without Christ. That's hard. People think of themselves as good. It's easy to come and say, hey, you might need a little help, but that's what most people think. I need a little help. Where Jesus says, no, no, apart from me, you can do nothing. You need a lot of help. You need all my help because you can't do anything without me. It takes humility to be able to, like the old hymn says, identify yourself as a wretch that needs amazing grace, right? But not a lot of people truly want to admit that. But think about the first thing that Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who admit, I've got nothing without Christ, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where it begins, by admitting your need. And then it results in dependence. And that's why one of the main words to describe Christianity in the New Testament is faith. This idea of trust, leaning on Jesus. One of the most famous preachers to ever live in America was Jonathan Edwards. And you've probably heard of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. But the first sermon he ever published was called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. And listen to what he said, God is glorified in the work of redemption in this, that there appears in it so absolute and universal a dependence of the redeemed on him. Let us be exhorted to exalt God alone and to ascribe to him all the glory of redemption. Let us endeavor to obtain and increase in a sensibleness of our great dependence on God, to mortify or kill a self-dependent and self righteous disposition. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. That's how you get saved. That's how you grow. A sense of your great dependence on God and every day killing your tendencies to be self-dependent and self-righteous. He goes on to talk about we're so prone naturally to want to exalt ourselves. We need to rely on God. And as we rely on him, we're going to glorify him. And isn't that the point of John 15? That by bearing much fruit, we might glorify God. We glorify him when we depend on him. As a pastor, I I talk to a lot of people whose lives are on the wrong track, and sometimes they're coming to me because they're like, hey, pastor, my life is not on the right track. And some of them have realized this, and they're like, all right, pastor, I'm going to stop doing all these things. I'm going to stop doing drugs. I'm going to stop sleeping around. I'm going to stop doing all the things I'm not supposed to do, and I'm going to start doing the good things. I'm going to be back in church, pastor. I'm going to start reading my Bible again, pastor. And I'm like, hey, you know what? That all sounds great, right? You should stop doing those things. You should start doing those things, but where's Jesus in all of that, right? Because what you just told me is a story of what you're gonna do. Do you understand what Jesus did and how none of that's gonna happen unless you're connected to him? It's a huge problem, right? The reason that that French guide crossed that ridge and cried out, le bois, le bois, wasn't because somebody worked really hard right? The Treasure Valley wasn't this place, a place of trees and abundance in the wilderness because somebody had cultivated it. No, God had. There was a river running through it, right? And that's what we need in our lives. The fruit that you're going to bear is ultimately going to be the result of Christ in you. And if you're not connected to Christ, that fruit is never going to happen. So if you see, I'm fruitless, there is nothing going on in my life, the answer is not do better, try harder. It is declare your dependence on Jesus 
Christ. And when you really have the life of the vine flowing through you, it's going to be a different story. That's where we need to start. And then how do we take the life of Christ flowing through us and cultivate that so that we might produce more fruit? Well, that's why we're going to come back to John 15, 1 through 8 next Sunday and talk about what that looks like. So why don't you join me as we close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and I pray that we would be sober-minded this morning. God, thinking through just some of these things that we've looked at, God, what I think John 15 is saying and what we see clearly in Matthew chapter 7, God, that there will be many that are self-deceived, God. They've got some external connection to Christ, but clearly it's all a fake, it's all a game. And from their hearts, there's no trust on Christ. There's no dependence on him, no love for him, God. And Lord, we, we know that that's happening in our culture. And God, we pray that that would not be happening right here. God, and if there's people here today that as they look at their lives, God, I pray that you would open their eyes. Because even as we think about what needs to happen, God, the greatest sermon in the world can't change someone's heart. The most stirring time of worship can't soften somebody's heart. The sweetest fellowship, God, can't change us from the inside out. Your spirit can. So we call on you, God, through the power of your spirit, working through your word to open eyes, to change hearts this morning. And that there would be people here today, God, that right now they're deceived that they would leave here today for the first time ever truly depending on Jesus Christ. God, and if there's people here today that are still trying to do better and try harder and think that by their efforts, they can turn their lives around, God, help them to see that apart from Christ, they can do and they will do nothing, God. And I do pray that this church would be full of people who are actually saved and know that. And that in these coming weeks in John 15, God, you would fill us with that joy that comes from leaning on Christ, abiding him, producing in fruit, producing fruit, relying on prayer, and just experiencing the joy that you want for us. So God, accomplish your will through us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.